morning, everyone. Um, would you join me as we continue to worship as we pray? Gracious God, we do not and cannot live by bread alone. I pray that the heavenly food of your word that we're about to hear nourish us this morning in the ways of eternal life, filled with thanksgiving. Through Jesus Christ, the bread of heaven, we pray. Amen. Maybe some of us have been asked in our past with a question as this, perhaps at a retreat, perhaps at a revival, maybe when you're speaking with someone before you became a follower of Jesus. Suppose you were to die tonight and you stand before God and God were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? How have you responded? What would you say today? The majority of people that I've spoken with, whether they go to church or not, have given a sort of a works righteousness answer. They would say something like, well, I really did try to live a good life. I went to church regularly. I tied. I did this good work or that good work. The majority of people sought to trust in their own righteousness. And in today's passage, Jesus is giving this parable to some people who were quite sure that they didn't really need mercy from God, that they already had this right standing. These are people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treat others with contempt. This parable is sometimes titled the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, and it shows us two people who had two different postures, who prayed two very different prayers, and ultimately led to two ultimately different destinations. Kind of like the last parable that we studied last Sunday, this parable also starts with kind of an explanation, the point of giving this parable. And Jesus tells by starting off this parable to some who trust in themselves. Now, the sum here... Um, likely references the Pharisees, because before in chapter 16, Jesus speaks of them who try to justify themselves in the eyes of people, and the fact that the Pharisees also come up, it is likely that um, Jesus is thinking of them. Now, when we use the word righteous or righteousness, unfortunately, in our day and age, it probably doesn't have a very positive connotation. In fact, in the vernacular, in an average day, people would use it to describe something that is rigid or even condescending. But in the Old and the New Testament, righteousness or being righteous had a lot more to do with being approved and accepted before God. It was about having a right standing before God. You see, God throughout the scriptures 
had this perfect standard. He expected perfection, perfect obedience to his law. And in the New Testament, he repeats that, calling us to be perfect as he's, the Father is perfect, be holy as he is holy. But he shifts from focusing on external obedience in the New Testament, he elevates it by also focusing on internal obedience. That's why when we do confess our sins, we also confess the sins of our thoughts, things that we don't particularly do physically, but still happens inside, as well as words and deeds. You see, the most important question that mankind has to answer is a question of how can we be reconciled to God? You might think, well, I'm not at enmity with God. But actually, the Bible does say we are because that's what sin does. Sin makes us enemies with God. So how does anyone become reconciled with this holy, holy, holy God? Both the Old Testament and the New Testament teaches that justification is by faith that the righteousness of God is placed or imputed to sinners. And the whole entire sacrificial system reminds us of that. That's what was going on in the Old Testament. You see, the Jews of Jesus' days unfortunately had lost sight of the entire, not perhaps the entire, but the crux of the Old Testament teaching and its sacrificial system. It turned to it turned away from what it was meant to point them to, and many saw it as a legalistic system of salvation through their self-righteousness, based on their good works, following rituals, and outwardly keeping Old Testament laws. Religious leaders like the Pharisees, they talked endlessly about God, but they didn't really know how to be right with God. They didn't know that the written writings and things that were administered about God in the Old Testament pointed to this Redeemer, the Savior, the sacrifice. They knew about God. They knew about grace. They knew about righteousness. But unfortunately, they missed it. They missed that justification, being justified, was by faith alone. Even Paul, before, when he was Saul, he believed that lie. And when we look at Philippians 3, we see his outward credentials that he could have easily fallen into in boasting. And he says, If anyone has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, the Hebrew of Hebrews, and as to law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. And as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. That's how he saw himself. Recently, we celebrated Reformation Day, and we were reminded of Martin Luther, who in his early years, he was meditating on this perfect righteousness of God. And unlike an average monk who would confess Martin Luther 
had a kind of extra sensitive conscience and spent extra hours confessing before his confessor, Johann Stoppitz, even with the minute sins and not coming to that peace, not being convinced that this righteous God would accept him. And as a student of the law before, he found this righteous God to be unrelenting and unforgiving, not releasing this. The righteousness of God, initially, Luther hated when he studied the gospel. And it was much later when finally he came to realize that coming to Romans 1.17, the righteous shall live by faith as he studied Augustine going back, that he was able to realize that righteousness of God was God's mercy. It's God who makes us righteous. And the unfortunate reality of Jesus' days and the religious leaders is that they failed to recognize this. And in Luther's days, the Catholic Church failed to also recognize that. When Luther rediscovered the biblical doctrine of justification by faith, he was coming back to what entire Old Testament sacrificial system was teaching in all the years, that God's righteousness was imputed. Now, unfortunately, most of the Pharisees won't make that discovery that Entrance to God's kingdom can't be gained by human achievement. Even as they come to the temple, even as they whiff of the burnt offering, they fail to make the connection. And instead, what would they do? They would treat others with contempt, despising them, considering them worthless, of no value. The very language that we see the... um, the soldiers under the hand of Herod mocking and treating Jesus, that kind of despise is what we see here. Today's parable, if you think about last week's, it compares with the persistent widow who reminds us how we pray shows what we think of God. Here in this parable, it shows what we think of ourselves. As we pray, it discloses how we view ourselves. Um, So in verses 10 through 13, we see the parable. So Jesus begins with the intent, and 10 through 13, he tells us the parable, and he begins um, this way. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And we might be conditioned to think that when we read that word pray, we may think, well, this guy or this guy went to have this kind of a private devotional prayer time, but that's not actually the case because this would be most likely between two public prayer time, either the third hour, which is nine in the morning, or the ninth hour, which is 3 p.m. And this is during the daily, uh, twice daily whole offering time. And, you know, it's a corporate worship. People would gather together, and the prayer time would happen after Uh, atoning sacrifices are made, and you would pray as the incense is burnt. While many of us, when we think of a Pharisee, we may think because we're pretty used to it, 
um, in a negative sense. For those who are hearing this parable, um, it wouldn't have been negative because actually the Pharisees were a positive movement of his days. Now, there were these people called the Sadducees who were leading, but these were professional religious officials, pretty corrupt. They didn't believe in resurrection. And in response, these Pharisees reformed, and they were going to be devout. They sought to study the word of God. They wanted to obey it, and they took it seriously. And, and the people in Jesus' time saw the Pharisees as these serious reformers. Now, in contrast, when we see, when we hear tax collector, it, it was a terrible term in those days. I don't think many of us get excited about taxes now also, but this is at another level. You know, being a people who were occupied, the Romans basically put taxes on them and collected the taxes and sent it back to Rome. It was the spoil of war. And who did the dirty job of collecting taxes? Well, it was kind of contracted out. The Romans contracted out to the Jews and kind of like the, you know, the collaborators you might imagine during Nazi regime, during the European occupation. And why did the Jews who did do this partake? For the money. Typically, they would, they would have to send a certain amount back to Rome so whatever they collected above and beyond, they got to keep. So they were, many of them were wealthy, and um, they were greedy, and they were hated for it. They were considered as monsters, uh, both religious and political traitors. They weren't allowed to hold public office, and they were barred from giving um, public testimony in court. No one would expect the tax collector to come up to the temple to pray. They would be doing something else. So you have this tax collector who was like literally a crook at that time and the Pharisee who represented everything that was right and good. Even historian Josephus speaks of Pharisees this way, a certain sect of Jews that appear more religious than others and seem to interpret the laws more accurately. People thought highly of them. And we continue, Jesus continues with the parable. And here we see Pharisee in verses 11 and 12. We see his posture, how he kind of stands, and we see the words. Now, it's pretty interesting because it's the reverse of what we see with the um, tax collector. Very few words are used to describe his posture, the way he's standing, and many words are used to describe his prayer. It's reverse for um, the tax collector. And he's standing by himself, and he prays. Um, sometimes the translation can be about himself, by himself, by himself. But in, in any case, he is distancing himself from other people, the masses. He, he's standing out. And most likely, you know, this will be in front of the court of Israel. And as the time of the worship, whether it's 9 a.m. or 3 p.m., people are gathering. He probably came at that perfect time. And as he smells a burnt offering, he's probably standing kind of erect by himself. And back in those days, you'll have those phylacteries, those boxes with scripture inside. And he's praying. And they would pray out loud in an audible way for the court to hear. And he starts. He starts by saying, God, I thank you. Kind of like auspicious start. Because if you 
Say, I thank you, God. You would expect, just like any letters, if you're thank some, thanking someone, you would write about what that person did that you're thanking. But when you continue, besides I thank you that, it's not God-centered at all. He's just focusing himself. He's just praising himself. And there are two components in the way he praises himself. The first part is he, he praises himself being a moral man. And he says, by, I thank you that, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. What kind of men? Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I think our modern sentiment again and our familiarity might make us kind of cringe. It's like, ooh, this self-righteous hypocrite. But to the first-time hearers, they will most likely admire the fact that this guy is a moral person. But he nevertheless continues by comparing himself with kind of the lowest of the Jewish society, extortioners or robbers, basically, the unjust, anyone who cheats or are dishonest, and that unjust is the opposite of um, righteous um, and adulterers. So this guy is not sexually immoral. Um, and in fact, tax collector would hang out with people like that. And he's keeping his distance to show his spiritual superiority, physical distance, Reflecting that. He's probably thinking, why aren't people ushering out this guy? He doesn't quite belong here. In the midst of this, the audience is admired. They're admiring this moral man. In addition, he continues, I fast twice a week. I give tithes to all that I get. And we see that this man is a religious man. Pharisees were big into fasting. They were big into tithing. In fact, I think the only day that you as a Jew are obligated, mandated to fast, is a day of atonement. One day. But these guys fasted Tuesdays and Thursdays twice a week, 100 times more than what was mandated. Pointing out, they go above and beyond. They do more than what God expects. That's what he wants to show. And not only that, they're into tithing and tithing one-tenth of everything that they receive. Tithing wasn't actually required for every produce or every form of income, but these guys, they would tithe mint and dill and cumin and ruin every kind of garden herbs. And remember, Jesus condemned this sort of praying and fasting and tithing that only brought attention to yourself in the Sermon on Mount. Back in Jesus' days, there was this uh, Pharisaic prayer. It goes something like this, kind of a modern rendition, but I thank you, Lord my God, that you have assigned my lot with those who sit in the house of learning and not with those who sit on, at street corners, like these money changers and traders. For I rise early and they rise early. I rise early to study the word of Torah and they rise early to attend to things of no importance. I weary myself and they weary themselves. I weary myself and gain thereby, while they weary themselves without gaining anything. I run and they run. I run toward the life of the age to come, while they run 
toward the pit of destruction. When you continue to reread the short prayer that the Pharisee prayed, you see first-person pronoun repeating again and again. It's about I, 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 and I. He's reminding himself basically what a great guy he is. And actually, he, he doesn't ask God for anything. He's rather very content. He doesn't have any recognition of sin. Remember where he's at? Sacrifice has been given. You're smelling the incense. You're before the temple. But he has nothing to say about what he needs forgiveness for. No need for help. No mercy. No praise. And he he really has nothing that he wants or needs from God. He has a wrong focus. Instead of trusting in God, he trusts in what God has produced in him. If there's any good in us, it's because of God's grace. But he's relying and depending on the good works that he gets to do instead of what God has done in himself. He's focusing on himself and wrong righteousness. He's focusing on himself and his own righteousness instead of on God and the righteousness that God gives to those who trust and have faith in him. Augustine showed what was wrong with this man's thinking by comparing him to a medical patient, and this is what he says. The Pharisee was not rejoicing so much in his own clean bill of health as in comparing it with the disease of others. He came to the doctor. It would have been more worthwhile to inform him by confession of the things that were wrong with himself instead of keeping his wounds secret and having the nerve to crow over the scars of others. It is not surprising that the tax collector went away cured since he had not been ashamed of showing where he felt pain. So in contrast to the Pharisee, in verse 13, we see the tax collector. Just notice the posture and notice the very few words that he says in his prayer. He's standing far off. He would not even lift up his eyes to heaven because that's what the Pharisee is doing. And often that's what Moses, that's how he prayed, looking up, hands open. But this tax collector, he's standing far away because he knows he doesn't belong. He's a sinner before God. He's a wretch. And he's too ashamed to look up. And he beats his chest. And typically men don't do that but it's to show that he is in anguish. He is sorrowful. It's a gesture of humility. And he cries out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Doesn't have much to say. In comparison to the Pharisee who has much to say about himself, this tax collector, just these mere words, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He knew he needed forgiveness of sins from God. 
He knew there was nothing that he could look inside and be boasting about. There was nothing in him. Everyone reminded him of that, and he knew. So the tax collector, he looks away from himself and to God. Pharisees, he looks to himself instead of God. And says, be merciful to me. When the Bible uses the word merciful, um, usually it uses a specific Greek word, eleos. It's the word that a blind man uses to cry out to Jesus. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. It's kind of a normal word for mercy. But when the tax collector, in his shame, in his humility, in his sorrow, cries out, God, have mercy on me. He uses a different word. It's actually a verb that's used to mean atone for my sins. And the noun form is actually used to reference the mercy seat. He's asking God, propitiate. God, expiate my sin. Atone for my sin with the blood sacrifice. Because you, you, you see, at that day of atonement, the high priest would come uh, for the sins of God's people. And he will begin by uh, offering a bull to atone for his sin and the sins of his household. And after, he will take a perfect male goat. Gets a little bloody here. And he sacrifices as a sin offering. Um, in Le- Leviticus 16, it says, Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people, bring its blood inside the veil, and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling over the mercy seat in- and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness, uncleanliness of the people of Israel and because of their transgression, all their sins." You see, the high priest was making atonement for himself and for his house and for the entire assembly of Israel. So you may ask, what does the goat, what, what, what does this all signify? Well, the goat represented God's sinful people. It was a symbolic way where the sins of God's people were transferred to the goat. And the sinner would place his hand as the sacrifice is made on the head of the animal and confess the sins. So there's a transferring of guilt from the person to the animal. And the sinner's guilt is charged, imputed to the animal. So the goat was a substitute dying in the place of sinners. And this happened every year because this was not a perfect plan. The sacrifice offered the Day of Atonement, you would think people like the Pharisees, the religious people, would understand what it was pointing to. But they didn't. If you think about it, and if you think about and pay attention to the catechism we're going through, whether the covenant of grace from the old as we go next week to the new, It's administered a different way, but it ultimately points to Jesus Christ, what he did on that cross and empty tomb. 
because it's, it requires blood to take away guilt. When the priests sprinkle blood on the mercy seat, which was a golden lid on top of the Ark of the Covenant, mercy seat represented a place of divine judgment because under the Ark, you have the law of God, which the people of God had broken. And it, that sprinkling of blood on the mercy seat was a way to show the atoning sacrifice had come between God and his sinful people. There are two kind of important theological words that I think is important to understand when we think about this, when the tax collector asks, have mercy, have mercy on me. Um, there's the word expiation, which has to do with covering of sin. It shows in respect to us sinners. So the blood of the lamb, ultimately pointing to the blood of the lamb of God, Jesus Christ, shows that our sins are covered. Our guilt is removed. This blood of the sacrifice pays a penalty for sin, and there's no further guilt. So that's expiation. It reveals how it affects us sinners. Now, the other word is propitiation. That has to do with the way it relates in regard to God because it, that act turns away the wrath of God. This righteous indignation because God is holy. He is against sin and he punishes sin because justice of God is satisfied Wrath is turned away. So this important word, this verb form of mercy seat, reflects both what happens to sinners, sin is covered, and what, what, how God responds by turning away from his wrath. And this is what the tax collector was asking. He used this word, God. Turn away your wrath and cover my sin. Be merciful. Mercy seated to him is what he is asking. In our response, we're going to sing a song, hymn by John Newton, famous uh, for writing Amazing Grace, this ex-slave traitor. Um, he was convicted he lamented over his sinful condition. And he says, but now I may, I must, I do mention the atonement. I have sinned, but Christ has died. He knew, he understood that God is mercy seated to the sinner through the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. What are you thankful for? this Thanksgiving. I wonder if we might utter words that might be similar to that of the Pharisee. Thanking God, at least initially, but really just boasting about ourselves. Or will we be able to truly thank God for his amazing grace that he has shown through his son, Jesus Christ.
Christ's death on the cross was the propitiation that all sacrifices were pointing to. It's what the temple sacrificial system was all pointing to as Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God. In the New Testament, this, this word, instead of the verb form that we see in today's parable, um, and the noun form comes up multiple times, showing us what Christ did. And Romans um, speaks of God presenting Jesus as a propitiation by his blood. And Hebrews um, speaks of um, Jesus in every way uh, making propitiation for the sins of the people. In 1 John, we come to this book often for our confession of sin, um, reminds us that he, Jesus, is a propitiation for our sin. And the language of propitiation for our sins repeat again and again in 1 John chapter 4 also. The blood of Jesus not only covers our sins and takes away our guilt, but thanks be to God, turns away, turned away God's wrath. Brothers, sisters, are we looking at ourselves too much? Or are we looking to God and what he has done? There's such a contrast in these two people and the way they posture themselves and the way they pray. At the end of this short prayer, he, he says, God, forgive me, have mercy on me, a sinner. In the actual Greek, it's actually a definite article, the sinner. Unlike the Pharisee who's comparing, oh, I'm better than these guys, everything is comparative, right? I go above and beyond, I'm so much better. This man, he knows who he is. He knows he has nothing to boast about, and he says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. He's saying, have mercy on me, the sinner. He's the only sinner that matters. There's no need to compare. Have mercy on me. Cover me. Cover my sin. Turn away your wrath through the work of Jesus. And the parable ends with this surprise that the first time here is probably didn't anticipate. But Jesus says, I tell you, he speaks authority. Um, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other, the Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be humble, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. We are justified not by what we do, but by a declaration of what God has done. We become right with God as God imputes us his righteousness through his son. Salvation, righteousness, it's not like acquiring an Eagle Scout badge. It's not about you do these things and you move up, but it's about someone else's work. It's about Christ's work on that cross when he bled and died. The Pharisees declared his own righteousness, and with that, God never declared that he was righteous, and he leaves unjustified. In fact, it was his righteousness that was his hindrance. His righteous acts were part of the problem. 
was too busy being self-righteous. We learned about justification, salvation by faith alone and Christ alone. And as we hinted before and talked about, faith is the sole instrument by which we grasp hold of Christ. God imputes, he counts the righteousness of Jesus. And if we want to stand before God as right, then we can only stand when we clothe ourselves with the righteousness of Christ. Atonement, this work of propitiation that God did every year annually, finishing up to Jesus Christ, always required faith. In the Old Testament time, when a sinner placed his hand on the head of the lamb and confessed his sins, he was exercising faith, trusting that God would be the one transferring his sin to that animal. But, in, but when we see the final work of Jesus, that sacrifice is no longer necessary because Jesus, as fully God and man, died a death that no, um, no one else could have died to restore us back, to restore that broken relationship, to cover us from our sins and penalty and turn God's wrath away from us. Two different people, two clearly different postures, two very different prayers, and two different destinies. And Jesus ends with a proverb about what it means to be, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. In the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, only God can truly be exalted and only God can truly exalt other people. And here we, we see that to those who humble themselves, God exalts. Um, no more punishment. And those who self-exalt to eternal judgment. Who are we looking at? I think sometime this week, I'm sure we'll take some time to think of things to thank God for. What will we thank the Lord for? Will we celebrate more of God's work of righteousness in our lives, the little works here and there? Because if we do anything right, it is by His grace. But even that is not something we can bank on. We need to trust and what Christ has done, not what Christ is doing in us, what Christ has done on that cross. Not to look at what God has worked in you, but again and again, continue to look at what Christ has done on that cross. Brothers and sisters, when are we most like the Pharisee? Do you find yourself comparing yourself to others maybe congratulating yourself, feeling a little more spiritual, a little more moral than someone else we know, because we can always find someone else who's a little less moral, less spiritual. Is that what's going to give us a sense of peace? Or will we turn to God, trust in Christ, who alone can give us that right standing through what he has done?
if you were to die tonight and stand before God, and the Lord asks you, why should I let you into heaven? May our answer be that because of Jesus, because he's our only hope, may that be our answer. Join me as we pray. Lord, during this Thanksgiving season, may we rejoice and give you thanks for trusting in your mercy-seating work in Jesus Christ, that we would rejoice that our sins are covered and that your wrath is turned away. May that be what we give you thanks for above all else. In Christ's name, join me as we continue to spend this time just humbling ourselves, posturing like the tax collector, and spend this time praying.